Well, good morning again, everyone. It's good to be with you here this morning, the last weekend uh, before the school year starts for many of us. And so uh, it's, it's good to kind of gather together. It's good to maybe, uh, it's good for you to watch that bumper for the last time. We've been in this sermon series on Revelation for 15 weeks now. So if you'll get your Bibles open, if you haven't already, Revelation chapter 21, we'll get there in just a moment. I love the little story about a little girl who was drawing a picture in her kindergarten class. And the teacher asked her what it was that she was drawing. And she responds, says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, oh, sweetie, oh, honey, I'm sorry. None of us actually know what God looks like. She said, well, I'm about to finish it up just now. And then everyone will know. They'll see as soon as I'm done. My, I'm glad that you're here. I, I think as we're finishing this sermon series, as we've been along, you've got a Bible with us. You'll see if you've been traveling along with us as we come to kind of the end of this sermon series, uh, you will see that our attempt was anyway as we've been going through this sermon series. And I don't ever want to overpromise and underdeliver. What we're trying to do is connect the dots to connect the dots that happen all through Scripture and then take us to what we see in Revelation, the end. And as we are getting there, kind of connect the dots and how all of the storyline uh, comes together. So if you have your Bibles open now, I want to be in chapter 21 now. Revelation chapter 21, and you're going to see a picture that is being painted here of who Jesus is and how it all connects to those dots in the storyline that have been shared so far. So Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, a, from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The Bible really is an amazing book. And if I try to state it more accurately, the Bible is this handheld library. And we've talked about this handheld library of 66 books that are all kind of put in this, uh, in this package together for us to see. Uh, it's these smaller works of literature all kind of put here together. But it's, it's not, the, the Bible is not a rule book, as many suppose. No, actually, the Bible is a story that is being told, the story of God. And it's, it's written, this story is written by more than 40 authors on three continents in, in, in multiple languages over 15 centuries. But that's not the most unique factor about the Bible. The Bible that we read it says that it, it, that it claims to be that this Bible is actually inspired and written by God. The words in this book are claimed to have been God-breathed. And John records here in Revelation chapter 21 when God is telling him, he says, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now we cannot brush past that without reaffirming once again and going on the record as it would be to be able to say that I believe that. 
And that we believe that. We believe that the Bible was inspired and written by God. And that there was more than 40 different authors who were, who were ranging from farmers to fishermen to poets to prophets to kings to generals. And it was written in caves and it was written in castles and it was written in prisons. But each one of them was inspired to write the same story, God's story. And that's how it all comes together. My aunt and uncle live in a little town called East Ridge, East Ridge, Tennessee. It's a tiny town on the outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And it was always an exciting trip to go there when I was a kid because of the makeup of our families. We were a good match for one another. I'm the, I'm the oldest and I'm the boy and I have three younger sisters. So there's four of us siblings. And our cousins, uh, Melanie, she was the oldest and she had three younger brothers. So there was four of them, there was four of us. And we just connected really well because we had the right matchup to be able to, to play together and interact with one another. I remember one of the times that we visited them that uh, we drove through this long tunnel uh, that was carved in the mountainside. And my uncle told me a story about this radio program that their, their family loved to listen to. I think they had a station wagon at the time that they loved to listen to. And, and this uh, radio program was hosted by a name named Paul Harvey. And this story uh, went on to tell us, and apparently that my cousins were fixated on one of Paul Harvey's stories when, when their family vehicle entered this long tunnel. And as they come into the tunnel, partway into the tunnel, the radio, in those days this would happen, the radio would cut out partway into the tunnel, and all they heard was static all the way through the tunnel. And then as they are coming through and they come to the opposite side of the tunnel, the, the catchphrase comes across, and now you know the rest of the story. They said, ah, we don't know the rest of the story. We don't know what is going on. What happened? Wait a minute. For those of you who are a little bit younger than me, and I'm kind of on the edge of it, to be honest, that, that Paul Harvey, if you don't know who he is, he had a radio program called The Rest of the Story. And during this program, what would happen is he would give you some little obscure known fact about a certain person or a certain thing that happened in history or one of our presidents and somehow tell us a little bit of the story that was somehow hidden from ma the mainline story or the history books of what you had known about that person or about that timeline. And you'd add interest and add different lights on the event. And after he discussed it and after he finished it, there's the big punchline, the, the big idea that he said at the very tail end. And then he would say this to his listeners at the end. And now you know the rest of the story. That's how the episode would always end. And as we finish the final chapters of the final book of the Bible, this final chapter in Revelation, it's my desire to point us to this morning the rest of the story. But if we're honest with ourselves, as we kind of come to the text here today, uh, we have to acknowledge that, that some of us, uh, as we come to the rest of the story here, we are coming with varying levels of static in our own ears. What do I mean by that? For some of you, the static is minimal. You are familiar with this text. You are familiar with the Bible and the way that it goes together, familiar with the way that God interacts with his people. And at least broad strokes, you are familiar with the book of Revelation. And so if you missed a week in this series or, or if you dozed off during a sermon, which I'm sure that none of you have ever done, but if that happened, then you wake up in the middle of it, you go, oh, wait, okay, I know where he's at, I know where we're going, I know what's going on here, you're doing okay. But then there's others of you who have more static in your ears, or really the static is deafening. And what do I mean by that? You come in this morning with all the distractions 
of the world, all the interference that's being created in your ears and in your mind and limiting your ability to hear the voice of God this morning. Not my voice, but the the voice that God is trying to speak from his word. You have, a, you have a desire to find your place in God's story, but it's, it's difficult for you. It's difficult for you to decipher how you're supposed to fit in and where your piece of the puzzle is when you're hearing all of that static. And then there are a few of you that are here this morning that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ at all. And, and, and if that's the case uh, from what we are learning in Scripture, then you really don't even have a radio tuner as it would be. Meaning that the Holy Spirit is not in you to be able to decipher the voice of God. You are reading the stories written in the Bible, but to you they are stories and characters and words on a page. But if the Holy Spirit is working in you, attuning you to what the heart of God is speaking, the heart of the Father, and if you don't have that happening, you simply cannot comprehend why a person would give themselves wholly to the cause that is laid out for us, the mission that is laid out for us in Scripture. But perhaps today... Perhaps today would be the day that the Holy Spirit would spark something inside of you, that you would respond to the gospel in a personal way, and the story starts to come together. I pray that that would be today for you. So we've arrived here at the end of God's final book, the last chapters. There's no book after this. There's nothing behind this. If you've got a Bible like mine, after this you have some definitions and some concordances, and then you get to the maps, which are really exciting. And after that, it's it. It's all over. God's final message, his last will and testament. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. You're one chapter over, one page over for most of you. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign together forever and ever. And then the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Have you ever read a novel or a book and you you open up that first chapter or maybe the first uh, episode of a new series that you're watching on Netflix? And that first episode, it seems like there's a whole lot of things being introduced all at once, and you kind of got to get your mind about it. The, the story is cast, the characters are introduced, the hero is forefront, and then maybe one, uh, chapter one, chapter two, episode one, episode two, then, then some tension is introduced. Uh, the plot is injected, a twist, if you will, and some uh, intrigue carries you along in the book. You're never quite sure how it's all going to turn out because that twist that happened at the beginning of the book is not ever going to be resolved until you get to the end. But that last chapter is always satisfying. That last chapter always pulls things together. It always works out what the tension has been throughout the book. And the Bible is sort of like that. It opens up with this great creation, introducing everything and everyone. And we we meet Adam and Eve. But then there's the fall of man. Sin is introduced. The enemy, Satan, is introduced. And the plot 
thickens and we see chapter after chapter. We see Israel's disobedience and the longing for something better. Then we see that the Messiah has come. And we have this sigh of relief. But then at the end of season one, he dies. (laughs) But then he comes back in season two. He rises from the dead. And he tells us as though I am leaving. And as he is leaving, he says, as I am leaving, I will come back. I will return to you. That's what he's telling us. And the rest of the Bible unfolds and you wonder, so when is he coming back? And what is going to happen to the world? And then you read the last couple of chapters and we breathe a sigh of relief. When we realize, oh, this is where it's all going. And we see when it's all said and done, it's this wonderful story that has been told. It begins like this and it ends like it begins, but only better. Because now the lost are restored. The broken are made new. The Bible begins in a garden and the Bible ends in a city with a garden-like environment. And listen to these comparisons if we look at it. Genesis 1 introduces God creating a heaven and in a new earth. Revelation uh, closes with God is creating a new heavens and a new earth. In Genesis chapter 1, the sun is created. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we see that there's a new form of light that is being shown. There's no need for the sun because the lamb is the light in this new environment. In Genesis chapter 1, the night is distinguished from the day as God makes the cycles that you and I are familiar with that happen every day, every year, every century. But in the end, there is no night. There is only light. In Genesis 3, the curse is announced and we see the curse and we see the damage that it does to Adam and Eve specifically but then we see it play itself out all the way through history but we see here in Revelation chapter 2 and the announcement is made here that there will no longer be what? A curse. In Genesis a man is driven away from the tree of life and from the paradise of God but in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 2 we see the tree of life again restored in the new Jerusalem. In Genesis, we see sorrow and pain at the beginning. But in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the last chapters of this book, we see that there's no sorrow, there's no pain, there's no tears, there's no death. It's over. And we begin the epilogue, the closing, concluding remarks, the application. And it would seem as though there would be nothing more to be said. This story's over. And then eternity. The story is over, but then eternity follows. It follows for those who love Jesus Christ and are called according to his purpose. Now don't get me wrong. The story that we read in scripture may be over, but there's still questions left unanswered. There are still characters in the plot line that we still don't understand. And there are many others, particularly in the book of Revelation, that we haven't even discussed, haven't even talked about. They came, they went, we didn't, we didn't mention them. There's still more to learn. But the more we study God's word, and the more you and I learn about God, the more you know how much you don't know about God, about his creation, even about ourselves. We realize how little we actually know. King Solomon would tell us that this is the beginnings of wisdom is actually the humility and understanding that there's a lot of things and there's these mysteries out there and it would be an injustice for us to try to answer what are unanswerable questions. 
Callison Ware is an English theologian. He's in his 90s now. He made a statement years ago that said this, It is not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers to every question, but instead to make us progressively aware of a great mystery. And as he lives what would seem to be the final chapter of his life, if he's 90 years old, I can't imagine he's got too many more years left. Wouldn't he know that to be more true than ever? Don't you think that this statement that he made years ago now resonates with him even more? That he's not, Christianity is not providing him with answers to every question, but more so to be becoming aware of the mystery and the beauty of God. Mystery is a truth that we cannot totally control or contain. So God is not so much the object of our knowledge, but the cause of our wonder and our amazement. So at the end of this series, as we come out to this, I, I bet you want some answers. And, and, and you want to know how things are playing out, how, how to get the specific answers, particularly in the book of Revelation. I probably, after doing and teaching and being part of this sermon series, I probably have more questions than I began with as we started this series. But I want you to get to the end of this book and see the connections that we need to be making is that it's a mystery. That it's a beautiful mystery, and that amazement and awe, that in and of itself is a gift from God. Albert Einstein said there's two ways to live your life. One is if nothing were a miracle. And that's definitely an option. We can, we can live in that mode. You can live in that mode if you want. But Einstein said there is another way to live. To look at everything as if it were a miracle. Perhaps that's the way you and I should live our lives. Now back to that silly story I shared at the beginning about the little girl in the kindergarten class who is drawing a picture of God. Do we know what God looks like? No. No, we don't. Do we know what he eats for breakfast? No. No, we don't. Do we know how big he is? No. No, we don't. But whatever you have in your mind, as to how big you think God is, he's bigger than that. The biggest thing that you can imagine, God is bigger than that. From a theological word that we put together with that, it's, it's this word called transcendence. No matter what we can think of, he's, he's one step ahead of us. He's one big bigger than what you are thinking of right now. God is bigger than big. And at the same time, we learn, as we look through scriptures, the story is played out for us. God is bigger than big, but he is also, God is closer than close. The theological word for this is imminence. At Christmas, we, we use a word that we talk about uh, more often at that time of year to be able to say God is Emmanuel. God is with us. God is here. God is now. And in John chapter 1, we realize that God moved into our neighborhoods, made himself available. That God incarnate has now got skin and flesh on. God is bigger than big. God is closer than close. And God is gooder than good. I know this is bad English, but it's good theology. What I'm trying to be able to share with you so that you'll remember it. God is bigger than big, God is closer than close, and God is gooder than good. At the end of each creation day, God looks back at what he has made, and he looks at it, and he makes this phrase. He repeats it at the end of each day. What is that phrase? God saw it, and it was good. God is gooder than good. 
when he looks back on all that he has made and wonders, he says, I think I actually outdid myself. But God is gooder than good. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, it's going to be gooder than what you can imagine. Because God is bigger than big, God is closer than close, and God is gooder than good. So look at Revelation chapter 22 with this in the back of your mind. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has what? Has passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, I am making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is just the tip of the iceberg, friends. He is making all things new. Our God, our God is bigger than big. Our God is closer than close. And our God is gooder than good. And he is making all things new. When we realize that, and we connect the dots, and we look at what God has been teaching us through His, through His Word, after 15 weeks in Revelation, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it comes out again and again and again. Now, we only really made it, honestly, through chapter 11 that way. I'm kind of leapfrogging to the end today, and I know that, and I realize that, because I don't want us to miss the forest through the trees. Revelation chapter 1 tells us what this book is about. It's, it's written by John not to reveal to us how things end. That's not what the book is about. He tells us, I'm revealing to you what? Jesus Christ, the author, the finisher of our faith. Because God is bigger than big, God is closer than close, and God is gooder than good. Let me introduce to you Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 4, we are brought into the very throne room of God, the command center of heaven. We see all that God is, how big and wonderful and glorious he is. John is awestruck by what he sees. He drops to his knees in wonder. But if you remember, he's mortified by the situation that is playing out in front of him. Is there anyone worthy is there anyone worthy in all of heaven, in all of earth? Is there anyone, is there anyone worthy to open the scroll? And there's a panic that ensues. They don't know who's going to do it. They're all afraid. No, there's no one in heaven or on earth who is worthy. That is until the Lamb comes forward. The Lamb of God. And all of this wonder... And all of this splendor and all of these mighty creatures that you see around the throne. No, it's not the wise elders, those 24 elders who sit around the throne. No, it's not any one of them or all of them collectively putting all of their thoughts together. No, it is the Lamb. He is the one who is worthy. 
the one who humbled himself. He's the lion who humbled himself before the holy God for the sake of the sins of the entire world of all time. God is bigger than big, closer than close, gooder than good. And as the story unfolds, particularly in this book of Revelation, the scroll is opened, the seals are broken in all manner of ways, and all the strangest looking characters you can think of, and all the craziest seeming symbols that are being portrayed, heaven and earth are turned upside down and shook until everything falls apart and breaks. These seven bowls of wrath in chapters 12 through 20, the, the, the parts that we skipped over, this woman and the dragon, these great beasts from the sea, the other one is coming out of the earth. Uh, but you know it remains constant. Do you know what is there throughout all who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? It is the Lamb who is introduced, the one who is being revealed, the central figure at the main point of this entire letter, and the main character, the hero of the entire story that is being told, Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is bigger than big, closer than close, gooder than good. In chapter 12, we see Babylon portrayed as this prostitute who's gone awry, who is is this awful and evil woman, drunk on on the blood, it says, of the martyrs terrifying and destroying everything. And and, and we learn that she is called Babylon. Babylon specifically or Babylon generally talking about the apex of self-indulgence. The idea of money, sex, and power. Babylon is at the top of all that. So any uh, person, any government, any place, any nation that fulfills that is being personified here by that. We meet this beast that comes out of the sea. And then it would seem as though uh, a puppet master for another beast of the earth. And it's all kind of coming together and we see the dragon that is being talked about as we go through it. This serpent that we saw back in the Garden of Eden has now come to try to destroy the seed that was prophesied. But we're reminded that he is the great deceiver. And all the power and all the authority and all that would seem that he would have in all, of the, all that he would throw at the kingdoms of heaven is all a farce. It's all deception because we see the lamb. We see the lamb at the center. We see the lamb on the white horse. And we read about this battle that happens. This battle of Armageddon, which we've talked about and heard about and heard people talk about for a long time. Where it all kind of comes to a head. But if we miss the context of the rest of the story that's being told, we're going to have a mindset that that you and I one day in the future that we get to go out to the battlefield like some some movie that we've seen somewhere, that that, that we're going to go out and and fight. We're going to put on our robes and we're going to fight and start knocking down the bad guys. But if that's the case, you've missed the entire story that is being told. Because yes, there is a battle that is going to be fought. But when Christ, when the Lamb comes to the battlefield, He comes covered in, dripped in, red. He is covered in blood before the battle starts. Why is that the case? Because His blood has been shed. 
His blood has been shed for for the purposes of everyone else. And so as you read that passage, as you look at that passage, and you see the rest of those who come with him into the battlefield, their robes are white and pure and clean and holy because of the Lamb. And one of the bloodiest kind of ideas that is portrayed is that this battle happens and that, that the blood would fill the valley to the bridles of horses as far as you can see in every direction. And I believe that at times we've thought that this is going to be the goriest battle ever and we've missed the point that is being told through the rest of Scripture. That God is bigger than big. God is closer than close. God is gooder than good. And so what's actually happening is it's the blood of the Lamb that covers Because what do we come to the battlefield in? It teaches us that we come to the battlefield not with swords, not with spears, not with shields. We come to the battlefield with palm branches. Because the battle's already been won. The blood of the land covers all sin, the worst sin, the goriest sin. And we're told again and again and again to turn and to focus and to pay attention to the lamb that was slain for your sins and for mine. The lamb doesn't come to the battlefield with a sword in his fist. No, he comes to the battlefield with a sword in his mouth. Because of the word of the Lord breaks through, cuts through, exposes all things and brings out the truth that the deceiver has been fighting against and the power that he is supposed to have. You see, at the word of the Lamb, all things are made new. At the word of the Lamb, all things are exposed. And because of the Lamb, all things are covered in his blood. God is bigger than big. God is closer than close. God is gooder than good. So what? Who cares? Because if this is just a story that we're reading, if this is just a movie that we're watching, who cares? It's good entertainment. But if it's more than that, then shouldn't we pay attention? If it is more than that, and that everything in Scripture is teaching us, and everything is showing us that the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world is at the center of everything, and we need to devote ourselves wholly and entirely to Him, then maybe we ought to pay attention. And I'm coming to the table, I understand that, with some presuppositions that the Bible is true. And for some of you say, well, I, I, you haven't proved that to me yet. Well, then you're actually coming to the presupposition that the Bible is untrue and it cannot be factual. So we're both coming with a, with a similar presupposition to be able to at- attach ourselves to this. But I also believe that if God is who he says he is, if the Holy Spirit is who he says he is, that actually that will be made clear to you through the power of the Holy Spirit, regardless of whether that's how you came in here this morning. That he can clear the static out of your ears as it would be. That you would clearly hear, clearly know, clearly respond to the rest of the story. Verse 6, the angel said to me, these words, they are trustworthy and true. 
the Lord, the God who inspired the prophets. He sent his angel to show his servants the things that what? Must soon take place. Now, if you're a skeptic here, you should say, well, well soon. How, how long is soon? Is that a weekend? Is that next week, next year, 10 years, 20 years, a generation? Because so, I'm looking at my watch, and it's been 2,000 years, right? For God, a thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. So we're two days in. The things that must soon take place. Look at verse 7. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy, what has been written down in this scroll. Jump down to verse 12. Look, I am what? I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, and it defines what that means for us. I am the first. I am the last. I am the beginning. I am the end. Verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take a free gift of the water of life, he can come too. Down to verse 20. He who testifies these things, he the center of, the focus of this book and through all of Scripture says, I, yes, I am coming soon. And John, what is his response? What's his commentary? What does he tell us? Oh, he says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So as we look at this book, as we look at this chapter, as we close it, we're realizing that the end is just the beginning. As we come to the end of understanding God's word, then we're going to have to go back. We're going to have to do it again and again and again as we try to unfold the mysteries of God and be drawn closer to him because he is so much more than we can comprehend or fathom. But why would you push away? He is calling to you. He says, I am coming. I am coming soon. Come. You are thirsty. Come. If you're hearing my words, you're hearing what I've done for you. You're hearing how the battle has already been won. Come. Come. Jesus told his disciples as he was gathering together. He said, come, follow me. Multiple times. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. I will make you a disciple maker. And what, what's your job as a disciple maker? To tell the people who are following you, come follow me as I follow Christ. It's all about Jesus, friends. He's the central focus of all that we do. John 14, 6, he tells us, he says, I'm the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man what? Comes to the Father except through so if you're here this morning and you've never built a personal relationship with Jesus Christ yourself, the invitation is there to come. 
if you are here this morning and you have a relationship with Christ, you have been called to, uh, passages like this, books of the Bible like this say, it is your job, it is your responsibility to invite others to come to Christ as well. Because he's the main point. It's not the main point of us being in this room, in this place, in these pews with a building that looks like this. It's a waste of our time. If we do not point people to Jesus Christ. He tells us, I am coming soon. And then he tells us, shares with us to be able to share with one another. Share grace to one another. May the grace of the Lord, because this is a difficult thing to do. A difficult way to live your life. To be able to, to have this focus, this perspective. As Einstein says, he's telling us there's two ways to live. As if everything is miraculous or as if nothing is miraculous. So why, why not? Why don't we turn our eyes and fix on our Savior and our Lord Jesus and, and see the miracle that it is that we are on this planet and that we're taking a breath each moment. As Jesus was with his disciples, the band can come up with us this morning. Jesus was with his disciples the, the final time that he is with them. And he shares a meal with them together. We call this communion. We call this the Lord's Supper. But if you remember, maybe you don't, but if you remember at the end of the passage, Apostle Paul is teaching us how to be able to, to perform this communion meal, this Lord's Supper. To, he reminds us, what does he tell us to do? Proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes. Proclaim the beauty, the glory, the majesty of what has happened. How this God who is bigger than big, this God who has brought himself closer than close and is gooder than good, has made himself available to you and to me through his death and resurrection. So this morning, if you will, I hear some of you doing it already. You can grab that cup that's there in front of you. You can pull off that piece of plastic that's on the top. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have set yourself aside. You say, I want to follow you, Lord, in all that I do and all that I am. Then, then you are invited to be at the table of communion. You don't need to be a member of this church, but you do need to be a member of the family of God. Communion is more than just sipping grape juice and eating a, a wafer that doesn't taste very good. No, it is, it's the best way to symbolize and be able to help us be reminded of what Jesus has done for you and for me. We call it communion because common union, this connection that happens with fellow brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus Christ. It gives us a moment to evaluate, look in the mirror, the difference between the faith that has been lied out before us when we look at our, 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 the faith heritage in Scripture of how we ought to live our lives versus how we're actually living our lives. Have we lost sight of the beauty and the mystery of the Messiah? How He broke Himself and was pierced for you and for me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 puts it this way and reminds us. It says, For I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Will you break bread together with me this morning in remembrance of Jesus Christ?
And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For as often as you eat this bread, as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.